we are at the start of an AI revolution. There's so many new and transformative technologies popping up from ChatGPT a few months ago to Stable Diffusion and now Autonomous AI Agents. What's being built now has the ability to transform the upcoming decades. So in my opinion, it's definitely one of the most exciting times to be alive. With all this cool new tech being developed, what about using it for conservation, for helping out the planet? Well, it turns out that AI is already being used to do a lot of conservation projects. For example, to assess the biodiversity and spread of disease in the rainforests of Gabon, to assessing the ecosystem health of the Arctic Ocean, and much more. In this episode, I invite Dr. Yenje Shvievsky, head of AI at Absalon, to learn all about artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks, and all the projects I just mentioned. It's going to be packed with information and gold nuggets, so hope you enjoy. Welcome to the EcoChat Podcast. In each episode, we chat with experts in conservation, animal welfare, sustainability, or environmental science to learn how you and I can make a difference for the planet. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, NJ, how's it going? Hi, Sam. Thanks. It's good. So our topic today is AI for conservation, and it's such a broad topic with so many use cases. And the term AI is just trending so much right now with like chat GPT and then autonomous agents popping up right now. Can we start off by defining what exactly is AI? Sure. So first of all, let me say that I'm not sure anyone these days has an accurate overview of what is happening in AI because there's just so much going on that it's really hard to keep up. Um, but basically what, um, what AI is, I would say, is uh, a pursuit of building systems which are, well, based on computer programs. And then the most, um, the, the approach which gave us the best results so far was based on machine learning. And then some particular um, kind of sub-approaches within that we can talk about in a moment. But basically it's a, it's a pursuit of building systems that can reason, so that can um, based on data, so on information that uh, they gather by different means, and we can talk about those means as well. Think of images, uh, sounds, maybe text. Um, and then t based on this data, they can uh, come up with some patterns. So they, they can notice some patterns in this data and then produce some results, maybe predictions, uh, or maybe just like highlight those patterns in it. And they have many, many applications. So we'll be talking about conservation um, as one of the applications, but um, there are so many others. Um, for example, the large language models, which also happen to uh, come along that way. So these are uh, machine learning models um, behind them. Um, they can be, well, probably uh, many of uh, of the listeners uh, have spoken with or you know chatted with ChatGPT, um, which is uh, the most popular so far. Uh, example of a large language model, and you can chat with it about almost anything. So I would say that at least the way I view the term AI is that it's like, you know, this pursuit of having something, some some sort of intelligence, which is not, um, well, the, 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 
the thing that is like the not artificial intelligence is basically human or uh, animal intelligence, right? We see intelligent behavior um, in uh, various animals and also in humans. Um, so we can reason, we can calculate, we can do all sorts of uh, amazing stuff. And now let's try to build a system doing that. Yeah, there's so much going on in the AI space right now. I think there's over a hundred new AI tools that pop up week after week. And yeah, it's just really hard to keep up with everything. You mentioned another term there, machine learning. So what exactly is machine learning? Now, so that's that's AI, and then machine learning is one of the approaches to that. And machine learning is, in particular, um, related to the idea that you can use data for that. So, for example, um, an earlier approach uh, was that, well, let's build a large system of so-called business rules. So let's build, think of a large uh, complex structure of like a decision tree. So if you see this, then do that. And if it has this, then do that. And if the, something happens, then do that. Right. So like a very large structure of of conditional uh, statements. A- and then if this if this structure is large enough, then it kind of will appear as intelligent. But it turns out that this system is not very good. It can be good to some limits, but it's much better to. Um, to devise a system which can learn. And that's why it's called machine learning. So you can throw data at it and then devise an algorithm, which in some sense is following those type of business rules, but then it, it's following those rules to learn from the data. And the way it's actually using that data uh, afterwards is not exactly defined by the programmer, so the person designing that system, but rather it's inferred by the system from the data. Interesting. So how does this tie in with, let's say, chat GPT or image generation tools like MidJourney? Are these all machine learning models? Yes. And um, for example, like the simplest way to think of of, um, uh, of machine, or the simplest type of machine learning is uh, called supervised learning where you build a system that, for example, um, is the... Well, so, so basically, let, let's let's have a, an example of, of computer vision, right? So uh, as an input, you show the uh, system uh, an image. An image is a collection of pixels, and then you tell it to look at those pixels, um, and for each of the value, uh, somehow, uh, and the way exactly you do that is called architecture of the system, but basically, you tell it how to multiply and add those numbers and process them with some defined mathematical ways, but with some parameters. And then, um, and then, in those parameters, let's look at them as kind of knobs that you can that you could potentially tweak left or right. And then, after a sequence of those knobs, you um, that the system is generating some number. For example, uh, a zero if the um, if if well, the design is that it's going to be zero if um, if the image shows a cat, then it's going to be one if it shows a dog. And now this is called a classifier, so you're trying to build a system which which knows whether there is a cat or a dog in an image. But there are so many ways in which pixels can represent a, de- a dog or a cat, so it's hard to, by hand, design those knobs. And typically in the systems today that are deployed um, well, in, in sort of um, both in research and, and in enterprise uh, models, there are tens, maybe hundreds of millions of such knobs. 
uh, in the largest models, there are uh, billions or um, maybe even on the order of, of trillions um, uh, soon knobs of that sort. So it's it's impossible to to find the right settings of those knobs by hand. So the way to do that is to throw the data at it and just tell it, okay, show it an image of a cat and we know it's a cat. And then we see what the model produces. And if it produces the right answer, we, in some specific organized way, adjust those knobs such that it's encouraged to do the prediction that it did. If it predicted wrongly, then we adjust in sort of like an opposite direction, so to speak. Uh, and then a technical term for this adjusting the knobs is actually using a rather simple concept from optimization, which is um, basically finding the uh, minima in certain high-dimensional functions. And this is uh, the, the, an efficient way of doing that is by um, following the gradient of that function. So it's a kind of a procedural um, iterative uh, appro- iterative process in which you're slightly adjusting the knobs each time, uh, not too much, not too little, such that it gradually becomes better and better. Hmm. I like that analogy. So what you described there with like feeding the data to this algorithm, which is basically a, a set of many knobs which you can tweak, is that basically what a neural network is? Yeah, so so that's a good point. So what I was describing was a neural network and the process of teaching it or making it learn. Um, and of course, there are other models, uh, other types of models. Uh, I would call them classical machine learning. So for example, uh, think of models such as random forests or um, maybe uh, boosted decision trees or maybe some generalized linear models. But these are also models that learn from the data but they happen to have been outsmarted by the neural networks. So basically, uh, already, I don't know the exact date, but I think I would guess like 10 years ago. Don't cite me on that, Uh, but something like that. Um, It it became clear that those classical machine learning models are good in some settings where you need speed, where you need maybe not that accurate, but fast models. But when you have large amounts of data and you need really good performance of sophisticated, um, like you know, uh, tasks, uh, then definitely neural networks are the way to go. And I don't think we have yet reached the limit of what they can do for us. Oh yeah, for sure. So to recap and make sure I get it correct, a neural network is basically an algorithm with a set of nodes and knobs. And what you do is you feed it data. So, for example, millions of images of cats and dogs. And you also tell it the answer, right? So this is a cat, this is a dog. And then eventually, over many iterations, it would auto-adjust those knobs that you set. And basically, it's it's training itself so that eventually it would learn to accurately classify whether an image is a is a cat or a dog. Is that correct? Yes, I would say so. And... The thing is that this this used to be like that uh, a few years ago. So basically, whenever you would uh, start a machine learning project, you would design a network, then train a network from scratch on data, and that would typically require thousands, if not millions, of, of data points. Uh, but for some time now, we have established methods in more and more fields. And then actually, kind of next level 
techniques are used, such as transfer learning. So for example, in computer vision, quite often you don't start from scratch, but you take a model that was large model that was trained on some generic data set, and then you uh, and then you only tune it further. Uh, and I'm mentioning this because there is this common um, belief that you know machine learning is yeah you have to have big data right like millions of images, but I've seen examples and I've trained myself models which used like 80 images of a given object type, and the model was next to perfect on identifying them. Um, because it's 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 enough to have a very tiny data set if it's a simple data set if some other conditions are met, but um, but sometimes it's enough to have really tiny data sets uh, to be able to build very powerful systems these days. Nice. So you mentioned supervised learning. Are there any other types of learning that you would like to discuss? Yeah. So there is uh, there is also unsupervised learning. There is also reinforcement learning. Uh, Recently, what gained popularity is uh, human reinforced uh, learning. So basically, the this is the process that OpenAI uh, used for, or well, is there? Um, that that's the part they've shared about how they've trained um, the latest GPT models, or how they went from the raw model, as they call it, to the uh, to the one that is deployed in ChatGPT. So they basically took a raw model and then further tuned it with human feedback to uh, to be better at holding conver- conversation uh, with uh, with humans. To my understanding, what happens there is that you train the model and as it uh, like in, on various steps of its training, you look at what it outputs and then you show that you don't have predefined um, grading system of that so you don't know whether to encourage a certain output of the model or discourage it so you collect certain outputs of the model like a batch of output or collection of outputs and then you show it to humans uh, to human evaluators who judge like okay this is good this is not good this is somewhat good you know there are different ways you can do that but for simplicity let's uh, let's think of it binary so you know it's either good or not and then you use that information back to to train the model so to kind of either encourage that by tuning the knobs in a certain direction or maybe um discouraging it uh, if if it's not the right answer for uh, reinforcement learning um the the example that um i guess is maybe more most familiar um would be systems which learn to play games that we as humans recognize and then it's kind of you know uh, natural to associate uh, intelligence with those games um, because they require um, quite heavy thinking. So, for example, the systems that uh, play chess or the systems that play um, some online games like, um, I think it's called Dota, the game. I haven't played it myself, but um, I remember um, reading up on the on the research which went into that. So, basically, you're uh, coupling an agent, so a part of the system to uh, to some controls of the game. So if it's chess, then, well, there are possible moves that uh, that the agent can make, right, depending on the configuration on the board. And then the agent has to make a decision, right? So basically, you can think of it as calculating the probabilities of, uh, of winning uh, for each single move that it can make, and then it, it tries to maximize uh, on this probability. 
and then uh, basically it plays the game and of course the question is okay but how do you how do you teach it right when when does it happen that that it there is some feedback right so it can it can imp- how can it improve um because of course it's go- if it's just going to random guess then well it's not going to get better and, and the thing is that you can introduce something called a reward function or a reward mechanism and typically in a game setting this reward would be based on whether the goal has been achieved so whether the game was won so you basically collect decisions that the uh, um, that the agent makes during the game, and then after it, this game leads to a win or a lose. Um, if it if it led to a win, you're encouraging the um, the moves that it make that it made uh, on the way, and if uh, if it uh, eventually lost, then you're discouraging them. And what I just described, of course, in a more sophisticated setup, is sort of. Um, crude approach because you can make bad moves and then win just by luck um, or you can make some good moves and then lose because you made like the final bad move and then the question is how do you make this process converge how do you optimize such that the model actually is able to you know eventually learn the right moves and not focus for example on the if the game is linear then on the be- on the beginning of the game but just uh, or or not only at the end of the game but at the through the entire game what happens if the game is not linear so it's like it's a game in an open space and you can have you know we don't have like finite number of moves or scenarios that you can follow but rather there is like an infinite possibility of of uh, real time actions that a, that an agent can perform but there are also generalizations of this mechanism designed for that. Um, so we have now systems that play even open and um, games very well. Right. So reinforcement learning is what was used to build AlphaGo, right? Which is what the, the algo that Google created to beat the world's best Go players. Yeah. Um, you can also, I think, this has also been applied to like chess, yeah. StarCraft, League of yeah. Legends, and all these other video games, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, we've defined AI, machine learning, neural networks. We talked about all these different types of machine learning. We can transition now into our main topic. So how can all of this be applied to conservation? Yeah, so there, there are quite a few uh, ways. Um, the thing, uh, we at Epsilon are... Um, are most familiar with uh, and we are uh, we've applied it the most is computer vision so in in what follows i'll be probably mostly referencing that uh, but there are of course other ways so basically conservation or you know conservation of biodiversity um is um is a field where you deal with large ecosystems or or small, but you know, ecosystems, and, and and therefore they are quite complicated. There are multiple dimensions to them. Typically, there are multiple variables which are at play. And then, in order to drive some understanding about that, or you know, be able to uh, predict what is going to happen in those ecosystems, or understand the relationships between um, different, um, um, let's say, events in those ecosystems. Um, you are typically required to make inference or you know make use of uh, data that is very multidimensional, and typically there is a lot of the data. Um, let's say a lot of information is available, 
it doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy to collect, but it, it's there. It's information-rich environment. And because of that, um, there are there are actually established methods or for in, in many of the fields uh, of, of biodiversity conservation, there are established ecological models that are quite often statistical models. So there is some mathematical modeling of the system's behavior and you can uh, use those models to... Well, um, to to uh, get some conclusions, but quite often it turns out that machine learning methods, because mainly because they are allowing to uh, process much more data much quicker than it's possible with the statistical methods and like with um, human analysis, uh, you can use those methods to to basically speed up the the process of inference and therefore make it more accurate or make it more um, kind of wider reaching uh, depending on the particular scenario. Got it. So you mentioned that AI and machine learning can help speed up the process. It can help infer data and patterns more accurately. And you mentioned image classification as one of the use cases. So can you give us a real world example of this? Sure. So I would definitely like to uh, to mention the project that I'm, I think, the most proud of uh, from all the projects I've worked on. And this project is called Mbaza. Uh, so in a Gabonian dialect, it means the guardhouse. Uh, so basically, it's a project that started in collaboration with Dr. Robin Whitehawk, who at the time was a postdoc in ecology in the University of Stirling in Scotland. But he had a close collaboration with the National Parks Agency uh, in Gabon. And uh, he collected or he collaborated with many um, other uh, ecologists, scientists, and park rangers who um, in the field in Gabon uh, worked with uh, monitoring what's going on in the large rainforests that fill almost the entire um, uh, area of Gabon. And the thing is that in order to understand what is going in those in those forests? Uh, people have used camera traps. So, camera traps are small, palm-sized uh, devices that you uh, basically install um, in a in a certain place, and they are equipped with batteries, of course. Uh, in order to operate, they are equipped with a sensor, typically a heat sensor or a motion sensor, and then when this sensor is triggered presumably by a passing animal. Um, uh, a camera is triggered. Uh, it takes an image. These days it uh, records a video quite often. So it collects the information, right? Um, and then in principle, well, you can collect those uh, this information, right? There was, uh, there's an image of, I don't know, a tiger, maybe a lion somewhere. Uh, well, speaking of Africa, so, so let's say a, uh, a lion. Um, and then, you know, in principle, you can think, oh, okay, I know that the lion was there at a certain moment in time, so I can, for example, having a grid of those camera traps, understand the migration behavior of uh, of certain species, for example, of lions or, or elephants. The problem is that the camera traps are, um, well, that they have to be installed manually. So typic- a typical scenario is that um, park rangers, for example, in Gabon, uh, arrange trips which take several weeks and they basically walk through the rainforest and install cameras uh, or camera traps in certain locations. 
they take note of those locations. And then after uh, a few more weeks, they make the same route again, uh, collecting the data. And what collecting the data means in that case is basically collecting SD drives with the, uh, with the photos. Uh, and then possibly replacing the batteries or replacing cameras which are uh, which are broken, uh, and of course adding new uh, SD drives. And now they get to their base, and they need to well make use of the data they've collected. So typically they have uh, what they've been telling me around like thirty thousand images that they've collected, and they need to uh, well process it. So they sit down and click through them on on their laptops, uh, and just like identify you know. This is uh, um, Nukulangu rail. This is uh, a, a forest elephant. This is uh, some gorilla. This is some chimpanzee. And it takes them a couple of weeks. Now, this it takes them a couple of weeks because it's very hard to maintain focus for a human for like consecutive hours just clicking through images. Because you have to, I would be <laughs> glad to, to, to show you those images, and it's, it's hard to do in a podcast. But those images are just so full of information. I mean, these are photos taken of rainforests, right? From the level of like a meter, think of it like roughly a meter above the ground. So there is just everything going on there. There's so much, you know, um, uh, trees and bushes and, and leaves moving around. And quite often there are animals, but quite often they're not like, you know, nicely in, in front of the camera. Sometimes they are, and those images are magnificent. But but quite often they're hidden somewhere. You just see a trunk of an elephant, or you just see like a um, a giant rat running around somewhere. So so you have to really like look at the entirety of the image, looking for multiple species, typically twenty to thirty. So it's really hard to do uh, that, and it's it's a very eye straining and kind of mentally um, draining uh, exercise. And so. And so what we've built for them is a classification model. So we've built a machine learning model that can actually do exactly that. So you can uh, ask the model to look at those images and it tells you that, oh, here is an elephant. In this image, there's no animal. In this uh, image, there is uh, there is a gorilla. And in this image, there is a chimpanzee. And now the thing, that the magnificent thing, and the thing I really like about this project is that what we actually have been able to do is build an application around that model, uh, which those park rangers can install on their laptops and use it completely offline uh, in their bases in the forest. And then uh, even without having graphical processing units, so GPUs, um, they, they could actually use the laptops they have. I mean, they're using the laptops they now have um, to, uh, to process uh, this data. And they have the results that they used to obtain in a few weeks. Now they have it in a few hours. Wow. And from the next day, they can start building their ecological models and, you know, actually making use of the data. Okay. So to summarize the problem, these rangers are setting up camera traps in the rainforest to record the animals there. And these camera traps, they're basically like motion censored cameras that they set up in the rainforest. Yeah. And... After a few weeks or months, they bring it back to the lab and they basically have to go through tens of thousands of images, which these cameras have taken, and they have to manually, painstakingly go through 
each photo and try to find the animal and identify it. Yep. And so this process usually takes weeks or months, right? But yep. what you've done is you've built this software that uses AI image classification. And so you can just throw these tens of thousands of images into your model and it can classify the animals very quickly. Is that correct? Yeah, so exactly. And there is actually a few uh, interesting things about this. So, um, so so just to kind of highlight some things that surprised me the most, I think, um, in this endeavor. So one thing was that you can think of... Uh, when you install this camera, it typically has this uh, motion sensor and it's running 24-7. So if, if an animal moves at night, then it also is triggered. And we realized that there is quite often just black images in the data set that we got um, uh, for, for training those models. And, and then while working on the model, we realized that quite often our model looks at those dark images and believes very strongly. So we have like some way of measuring the certainty of the model's prediction. And, and it turns out that it was quite certain in the sense that there are some animals in some of the black images. And like, first I dismissed it as like, okay, it's making a mistake. Sure. I mean, it's a model. It sometimes makes mistakes, but then it kind of happened too often. So I started investigating those images and I mean, looking at the, um, at them with my eye, I saw just black pixels. Uh, I actually asked, um, the, 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 the expert, right? So the, the, the ecologists we got the data from, and they also labeled this as empty images, but then when I artificially uh, brightened the image to kind of highlight the tiny differences in the black color, it turned out that the animal is actually there somewhere in the back, completely in the dark. And and this, still the model was able to pick up the, the, you know, the tiny differences, which actually make up a shape of like clearly an elephant or a, or a giraffe in case of a model for, for savannas. And that was, that was a surprise. Because, because that actually meant that even though we told the model, in some sense it was wrong because we told the model these images are empty during training, but still in like trying to optimize learning what the giraffe is, it, it, it just, well, when it saw a giraffe in the dark, having sort of like night vision, it, it, actually, uh, it actually predicted um, quite firmly that it is a giraffe. And well, we found the giraffes and elephants and and zebras in the dark. So it was it was pretty amazing. Wow, that's very impressive. On that note, do you know the accuracy of this? Like, for example, what percentage of the time does it get it incorrectly, if ever? Yeah, so it, it does. It does get it incorrectly. Um, but it's it's hard to give... Uh, like, of course, I, I can give you a number, but, but without the context, this number doesn't tell you much. So... Um, so, so to give you to 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 explain what I mean is, uh, if I need to give a number, I would say it's between eighty and ninety percent accurate. But the thing is that, for example, a key factor in understanding this number is what are what is the number of classes you're dealing with, because if it's ninety percent accurate on two classes, like if you're only having images of cats and dogs, and it's ninety percent accurate. It's typically an okay result, but it's like eh, quite often you have mistakes. But then if you have like 30 classes 
or a hundred classes, and then it's ninety percent of the time exactly right. And for example, ninety-eight percent of the time, the the right answer is in the top two or top three. Then it has a different meaning. So, so so that that's one problem. The other problem is that the way to measure this accuracy of the model, the performance of the model, you typically use large data sets with with human provided labels, and those labels are often containing issues. For example, they don't see the animals in the dark. And then this prediction of the elephant in the, you know, on the black image will be counted as a failure because the label is, it's an empty image. But it's actually a right prediction, right? So so in order to, to catch those, you actually need to analyze the, the data set you're testing this on very carefully. And this sometimes is very hard. So that's why in order to judge the performance of the model, it typically is, well, it depends, it's really a case-by-case case thing, but quite often you have to think of what are you going to use it for. And in this case, for example, you have vast amounts of data and you don't actually need to have like 100% accuracy or, or even, I don't know, 98. It's enough to have 80% because already with that you can, uh, for example, uh, that there are ways of, of, for example, discarding the data that the model is not certain about and then making the kind of certainty a bit uh, of your predictions a bit uh, more um, trustworthy. And then you can build statistical ecological models on top of that. And they already are uh, typically as good as you can do without using machine learning. So uh, at least that's good. So, so with less data labeled and then also with errors in the labels, because, you know, after multiple hours, the, the problem, uh, we've touched upon earlier, the, the, the accuracy of your labeling drops, basically, if you're doing it by hand. Okay. So you've built this super impressive model that can detect animals and classify them in these images super quickly. So let's get into the nitty gritty details of this. How exactly did you build it? And how does it work? Like, what's the underlying algorithms behind it? Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe I should I should paint a bit of the background here. So I'm actually um, uh, working for a private company called Absalon, and I happen to lead the machine learning team um, in that company. But the the project I'm talking about, Mbaza, is a sort of data for good project, as we call it. So data for good as a kind of umbrella uh, term for us, uh, with which we um, cover projects that we engage in because we believe it's the right thing to do. So these are typically pro bono or so-called low bono project, the projects. So we either do them, well, in our free time or we do them uh, maybe for, you know, that they're maybe supported sometimes by some, um, for example, wildlife uh, conservation interested foundations who, you know, fund some research uh, in that areas. And we basically co- collaborate with scientists uh, or ecologists uh, or some organizations uh, interested in those topics to provide data analysis, sometimes data visualization uh, when we build some uh, dashboards or uh, systems of visualizing data for them. So in particular, Mbasa was born uh, in a collaboration with, uh, with the scientists I've mentioned, Dr. Robin Whitehawk, who came to us and said like, well, you're doing computer vision and I have large amounts of data. Maybe you can help me um, build something 
uh, because I've heard that it's possible. And we thought like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Um, so we first built the models and published a paper about them. Um, and then it turned out we were asking like, okay, so how can we actually make this model useful for you? And then he said, oh, well, we don't have internet access, so it would need to be deployed on our laptops. And then we came up with the idea of the app and uh, and built the app uh, behind it. And now the application is actually open sourced, so you can go to our GitHub, um, uh, well, of the organization, so Epsilon then slash Mbaza, and you can look at the source code of the application. And it contains three models, one for Gabon, with also, well, for the kind of um, Gabon area of the rainforest. So it has also been used in uh, Cameroon, in Congo, so in neighboring countries. And then there are two models developed for savannas, so on the east of uh, of Africa, so Kenya, Tanzania. Um, and, and then those models, uh, well, you can you can choose which models to to process your your data with. And then technically, what you, you've asked, like, what is it that that we actually did? So uh, we initially got a very large data set for for the Gabonian um, uh, fauna. The scientists were interested in capturing animals in very different settings there. Uh, and then uh, roughly 28, I think, or well, almost 30 species. Uh, so we got a data set of 1.6 million images. Uh, but eventually we actually, uh, a large part of the process of building this model is actually the data cleaning and data preparation. So quite often in the in the machine learning field, you would hear that uh, doing machine learning is like 80% cleaning data and 20% modeling. And there is, uh, I think, a lot of truth to that. So so we actually ended up training on just one-fifth of that data. So like 300,000 um, images. Um, and then, and then if once we have understood the, what happens in the data and what, and how to, um, prepare it for training, uh, we've actually used pre-trained models. So we started with, uh, the kind of benchmark models at the time, uh, which was ResNet family. So residual neural networks. Um, and then they gave us already interesting performance. Uh, we later moved on to newer architectures. I think the most recent one we've used is Convnext um, from uh, well from a few months ago, and then uh, yeah, and then later we also serialized the models to optimize their speed of performance and did all sorts of tricks to uh, to improve the performance. So you trained this model with over three hundred thousand images of camera trap photos, and your model is basically a neural network, right? If it can you describe how exactly a neural network can scan a photo and identify animals in the photo? Like, how exactly does that even work? Yes. Yeah, so, so indeed, we are we were using neural networks, and and these were uh, these like the uh, so far the the most prominent. Okay, I'm hesitating, and I'll explain myself in a moment. So one of the key approaches to to computer vision, right? So to building neural networks which are good with uh, images, is convolutional neural networks. So these are neural networks which are not um, simply connected to each pixel individually, like I've described uh, it in in simple terms, uh, I don't know, twenty minutes ago, but 
they are actually having a thing called kernels. So these are, uh, you can think of them as sort of fields of interest, which are kind of scanning through the image. They're typically squares, somewhat smaller, and then and then they go through the image multiple times uh, and then try to recognize like local patterns independent of where they are. So in, in the most simple way of understanding why it makes sense is that you want to recognize the chimpanzee uh, regardless of where it is in the image. So you want your model to be, technical term is translation invariant. So you want it to be um, working as good uh, regardless of where in the image that the object you're looking for is. And then you're having multiple layers of those uh, and that uh, and that allows you to uh, to gradually uh, encode in the model more and more complicated patterns. And then eventually uh, the model can learn to understand what patterns of pixel colors, pixel color intensities, uh, or typical for, I don't know, fur of, of, of a gorilla or maybe shape of the head of an elephant. Okay, so to make sure I get it correct, you were using convolutional neural networks, which basically has a kernel, which is a, a mm-hmm. square that moves around the image and scans things. Uh, so it can detect like, oh, this is a face here or there's a hand here. Is that how it works? Well, in the first layer, it typically actually recognizes simpler patterns. So, you know, there is an edge here, there is maybe a gradient of color here, and then in kind of the deeper layers of the network, they, those edges are connecting to form sort of like a maybe an um, corner pattern or maybe like a circular pattern, and then they get more and more sophisticated. So that's, that's the kind of typical insight that you get looking at the activations of the of the network. So when you're passing an image through it and you're looking at what kind of information you can gather about what happens inside. And, and in fact, there are methods of trying to build explanations for the predictions, uh, uh, which um, which can um, look at, which can do what I just described. So you can say, okay, so the, 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 the model predicts that this image is an elephant and then we can ask which pixels of that image um, had the biggest say in that prediction. And then you can basically build uh, so-called GraphCam maps. This is one of the methods, uh, which uh, which basically color the image with, uh, you know, with like those pixels are were important and those were not. And we have actually used that uh, in one of my favorite images from this data set which is an image of an Ukulengu rail. It's a small African bird, uh, which has like brown feathers, black beak, uh, and, and that makes it very hard to spot um, it, when, when it's kind of walking, you know, on the on the forest floor, or is that? Uh, but then, but then it has very characteristically shiny red legs, and you would think like that's gotta be easy to spot. But it's not because if the legs are, you know, in shadows between branches, it, it's really hard to to notice it. And, and there was an image that that um, like investigating the performance of the model, I, I found an image that was labeled as blank, but the model was very certain that there is an like rail in it. And so I thought, okay, let's let's give it a go. Let's let's actually find the the bird there. And it, I took a lot of time to actually find it, just you know, zooming in on different parts of the image. 
and going like part by part, analyzing it. And eventually I did find it. And it was hiding behind some leaves. There was like a piece of the beak, visible piece of the head with an eye. And then a piece of the legs between some other like leaves, you know, down below. And, and I was like, okay, but how did the model find it? And then exactly using the, the Skratka method, I noticed that, uh, that the part of the, like the shape of the beak was really highlighted as the region where, uh, which had a big influence on the prediction, uh, which tells me, I mean, it's, it's not, uh, a, a scientific method in the sense that it has some shortcomings. But it gives you a rough indication of uh, of, of of what what happened in the network, and, and then well, in this case, the the beak was the uh, was the giveaway. Wow! So the bird should learn to hide the beak as well. Very impressive. So to summarize, for a convolutional neural network or a CNN, you basically you have a square called a kernel, which scans the image for objects, and it it does this for multiple iterations or layers, right? Yep. So the first layer is usually very coarse. It only detects things like edges. Mm-hmm. And then the next layer down would be finer details. So for example, it can detect, oh, this is a body or this is a tree. Mm-hmm. And then the next layer down is even more finer. So like this is a hand, this is a foot, etc. And then the next layer down is even higher resolution. So like, oh, this is an eye or this is a beak. Yep. Is, is what I'm saying correct? Yeah, it's roughly like that, but... But these days, like the models, for example, the simplest models that we used in this project were uh, were, were having fifty layers, uh, and uh, and we've also worked with uh, models in this particular project which had over a hundred layers. So it's like you know it, it's a, it's a somewhat different scale, but these are not that large. Like a fifty layer ResNet uh, has uh, around fifty megabytes. Uh, it takes around fifty megabytes of space to store the the parameters of the model. So it's it's not a hugely um, large model. All right. We covered a lot of details on this Embaza project. It hit. Do you want to share with us what are some of the main outcomes or impacts from yeah. developing this project? Yeah, so the thing the thing I really like and I think is unique about Embaza is that the fact that I've mentioned that, that you can actually use it on a laptop without any internet access. So once you install it, you can install it on a USB drive from a USB drive or well, uh, connect to the internet when, when you're in a city and, and then uh, download the model, uh, the, the, the application with the models, uh, install it, and then you can use it wherever you have your laptop. So you only need electricity. And, and this is pretty unique because there are other systems uh, uh, such as Wildlife Insights, uh, which, um, which offer... Uh, similar uh, possibilities they to process camera traps, but they often require internet access because you need to send the data to some uh, large servers with GPUs, and then and then those process the uh, the images for you. So the thing is that this makes it uh, inaccessible in remote areas, and it so happens that the remote areas are where we actually need to monitor uh, with the use of camera traps because these are typically large areas with uh, terrain which is hard to uh, to penetrate for example from satellite imagery because of the well of the trees in the in the case of the rainforest so so the thing is so, so this is the kind of um, special thing about Embaza. and for me personally the special thing about it is is the impact so actually when I started 
engaging in such in such projects. And when we talk in our company about doing that, we thought like, why are we doing that? And the answer for us was that we want to have an impact. So of course, it's fun to work with images of gorillas and. I have a like private collection of my favorite images from those projects and they're magnificent, I can tell you. Um, but uh, but it, it was important for us to, to, to make a difference. And therefore, it's hugely, uh, I, say, I would say, gratifying to, to find that Embazel is actually used by park rangers and ecologists in, in Africa. And and they're uh, they're giving us very positive feedback about it, basically freeing up their time, and their time is precious because they, uh, for example, work with local authorities, um, informing them you know what is the impact of a certain road on the uh, on the on the conservation area uh, next to it, or where would be a good place to place um, some infrastructure that needs to be built for the human population living there. But then they want to minimize the impact it will have on, uh, for example, migration routes of elephants in that forest. And so it's important for them to be uh, really quick and identifying the uh, what, what happens there. Um, and Baza was also used, for example, in a study of a spread of a skin disease in the gorilla population. And then basically it was used to identify quickly the images with gorillas and then they were uh, further investigated to you know assess the uh, the level of the spread and the mechanism of the spread of this disease. Um, so it's it's something that uh, that I'm uh, really proud of in this project. Nice. Well, definitely sounds very effective and it has made a lot of impact. Let's now move on to the next project. I know Mbaza is only one of many AI projects you have for conservation. So, yeah, what would you like to discuss next? So, yeah, so so uh, what I talked about is uh, mostly applies to uh, to to Africa. Uh, we've actually talked a bit with with groups from from other areas, but so far it really has uh, been uh, deployed mostly in Africa. Um, and now let's kind of zoom out of the globe and and zoom back in in the north. So we've uh, had two collaborations so far uh, in the Arctic Oceans uh, with people who are studying marine ecosystems there. So in particular, in order to understand or one of the ways of building an understanding of what is happening in the oceans, um, in the ecosystems of the oceans, um, is that is to study the plankton. So you, you can think of uh, of plankton, so what, what, what the Scientists will tell you is that plankton is a, a key uh, node in the trophic chain uh, in the ocean. And what that means is that everything in the ocean either eats plankton or eats something that eats plankton. So basically, uh, assessing the health and the uh, um, uh, fitness, it's called, of the plankton, you can uh, assess you know, how much energy there is in the system which can be uh, consumed by uh, by the higher levels of the trophic chain. So, you know, by bigger animals, basically by fish, by uh, by some mammals living in the ocean. And uh, the the way that this uh, this fitness is assessed is that um, well, at least those that we those methods that we have um, worked with are imaging methods. So basically, uh, think of a ship, which um, 
uh, sails through um, through the ocean and then has a device uh, on it or actually behind it quite often. And then the ocean water with the plankton in it is flowing through that device. And then there is a camera setup which uh, basically takes pictures of the uh, of the plankton individuals. And these are tiny animals. Uh, think of the size of a grain of rice. At least those who are interested in, because actually the plankton, uh, you know, group of organisms is very varied, and there's quite a lot going on there. And uh, to my surprise, I've learned from those people that there is quite a lot that we don't understand yet about the plankton, which is pretty amazing. Um, but then, uh, the, because those animals are transparent. You can actually just looking at those images, you can see their so-called oil sac. So you can see the part of of the body of this thing inside it that contains oil, so contains fat. Uh, and this is actually a very strong indica- uh, you know, indication of how much energy will an animal consuming that plankton get from eating it. So it's important to see whether plankton is fit so it has a lot of this oil or you know that the oil sacs are, are tiny and that means that well there will be less food in the ocean for other animals and you can you can see where this is going of course when you're uh, in order to assess the, what happens in the ocean you don't need to i mean it's not enough to you know have a single cruise collect some samples and then have the answer you have to actually do it in many places in an organized way there are currents um, moving the plankton around, and then there is the question of you know what happens where, what is the influence of the glaciers melting, what is the influence of changing ocean currents, and all sorts of effects like that. Um, and, and basically, you need and basically people already collect a lot of those images, and then they process them manually. So they look at images and they segment them, so they highlight the pixels, like draw some polygons to assess the area. Of um, taken by the oil sac. From that, they can compute the volume because these are typically quite regular shapes, and then they can assess the mass of uh, of the fat containing those. And what we've done for them is built models that can do so-called image segmentation. So, given an image, the model predicts that well, this area of that image is an oil sac, and now having this prediction, we can predict the amount of um, of fat, so of oil, in uh, in in a given sample of uh, of water or in a given collection of images coming from a sample of water. And it turns out that that the models we've built, even those based on, um, let's say, not ideal labels, uh, the models were like because the the kind of um, let's call it accuracy of labeling those things was not ideal, but at least it was, you know, sometimes too big, sometimes too small. And on the average, actually, the model learned that, oh, oh, you're probably asking for this particular t- part of the ad- of the image. And it actually is better than the labels <laughs> in some sense, uh, which is pretty amazing. So quite often the, the model is actually, you know, nicely, sharply identifying the, the edge of the soil sack, even though the labels that we got for it are, you know, sometimes like having some weird places where someone just misclick um, uh, when when labeling you know, large amounts of data uh, for, for their purposes. So again, 
just just like in the Imbasa case, we were not really uh, using or. The thing that I liked about this project is that, and, and it's also a way we're often looking at projects, is can we easily get large amounts or rather large amounts of of labeled data? And this is sometimes possible in ecological studies because people make use of the data just manually. But we can go back to their research, like the, you know, that the, the labels they've used for or the the information they gather from those images, and from that gather like prepare a data set for automating what they've done so far such that or learning from that and then in the future they can actually do much more much quicker so to give you an example with this plankton uh we actually kind of redo a, redid a study that was already done by by a certain group um at university laval in canada uh and um actually in collaboration with uh with sorbonne university and then uh, it turned out that well, this is this this model. It proved that the model is is really good, and this is actually what they're planning to do is is to make use of that model on a much larger data set uh, that was untapped. So they actually have a very large data set of images they've collected over the years, but they just never had the time to process it. And only now, when they have the model, they are able to actually push it through the model, make it run for. I'm not sure exactly how long we'll see. It depends a bit on how we set it up. Um, but you know, for even for days, and then they will have a huge information database about what actually went on in the last years in the large areas of of the Arctic Ocean. So this is pretty exciting as well, I would say. Wow, that's amazing. So to summarize, make sure I get it correct. So to assess the health of the ecosystem in the Arctic Ocean, you need to look at the amount of fat in the plankton. Yep. And so how you do that is you have these ships with cameras that sail across the Arctic Ocean, which periodically take photos of the water with the plankton in it. Mm -hmm. And so in the end, what you're left with is lots of these images, which scientists need to painfully manually go through and kind of calculate the amount of fat in each plankton in each photo. Yep. Right. But what you've done is you've built a software which can basically take all of these images and very quickly and accurately calculate the amount of fat in the plankton so you can quickly assess the health of the Arctic ecosystem without waiting for weeks or months. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And there is one aspect that... I that there is one extra aspect that I would like to kind of draw your attention to, which is that I've mentioned that we're actually involved in two projects um, uh, regarding plankton. And, and, and they are in some sense complementary because in one of the projects, the, the people doing that uh, previously, you know, when they, they were faced with the problem of large amount of data and tedious processing, they, they chose to process the data um, more accurately, but then kind of compromising on how much data they are gonna be able to process. So how accurate, how how accurate a resolution they get of information from that, right? Because they only were able to process so much data with with that accuracy. Whereas in the other project, the approach that was taken was okay. Let's take a crude approach. So for example, they were not like segmenting the 
the parts that they were really interested in. But for example, for the size of the entire body of that animal, they were just like, you know, roughly estimating the area by like looking at the length and width, which of course, and, and then modeling with like, like, like an ellipse, which was, of course, that they knew that it's not accurate, but it was kind of, you know, a compromise, right? So it was fast and or faster and therefore uh and therefore they they hope to process more data and kind of gain on the level of the um let's say ecological model uh of those like a statistical power of the ecological model uh compromising on the on the uh data that they've used to build that model uh, and actually in both cases it turned out that the model we've, we've built for them are both faster than what they were doing and more accurate than what they were doing so we've asked them to, you know, spend some time to prepare test data where they would spend, like, be very tedious and be very exact and, and, and highlight the thing that they're looking for. And then we checked whether their method of doing that measurement was more accurate or whether what we've built is more accurate. And it turns out that, well, it, what we've managed to achieve for them uh, was was actually producing more accurate results and then producing it orders of magnitude faster because they can basically run a script to get it. Nice. I'm starting to get a sense of where this is going. So I can see a lot of similarities between this Arctic project and the Imbaza one, where you're using AI to basically classify images or detect things inside these images. Yeah. And so you can calculate and complete things magnitudes faster compared with you know humans doing it manually. Yeah. Maybe maybe another uh, project that I want to mention, which I'm really excited about, which does uh, uh, make use of AI, is actually one which happens in the near the South Pole. So it's uh, it's uh, in the Antarctic, um, and this is a, a collaboration I'm really happy about because it, uh, or really excited about currently because it's something that that we've just recently uh, been able to to achieve. So we've um, We've started a collaboration with the people from the um, Institute of Biochemistry and Biophysics of Polish Academy of Sciences, um, and they have uh, they, they happen to have a, a part which runs the uh, Polish sorry it's called the Artstowski Polish Antarctic Station I think I'm, I'm, I probably mixed up the name but basically it's an Antarctic station of the Poli- Polish Academy of Sciences. Um, and the researchers who uh, who go there uh, are in particular interested at uh, you know at, uh, in understanding the uh, the ecosystem um, of the Antarctic and then the changes it undergoes um, with the with the climate change, for example. And one of the problems there is that the weather is really rough, so it's hard to only some stations from the Antarctic are actually all year, and this one is. Um, and quite often it's hard to collect any data because the weather conditions are so severe that it's hard to you know, go out and, and collect anything. Um, but what they figured out is that there is a species uh, living there, which is called the Antarctic shag. And it actually is often referred to as cormorants because they look like cormorants. Um, but, uh, but they are... Uh, I think somewhat distinct, but the thing is that these are uh, birds which will nest on islands, but then they uh, dive uh, quite deep in the water. Amazingly, they can dive up to, I think, a 60 meters uh, into the water 
to uh, uh, to prey on fish, uh, and then they will they they can uh, fly back right and 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 have their lives on the ground, and, and this is important because because of the fact that they can fly so uh, so far uh, so, so so far away, they are quite a good indicator of the uh, abundance of fish in the water. So penguins, for example, uh, are very good swimmers, but they cannot fly, and you can only swim so far. So the thing is that that the shags can actually prey on a much larger area. So uh, and also there are no uh, predators in that, or almost no predators in that area which prey on shags themselves. So basically, the food abundance is the primary driver of uh, of the, of their reproductive success. So by monitoring the uh, size of the population of shags, you can actually infer quite a lot about the abundance of fish in that ecosystem. So it, it so you have a lot of information about what's happening in the ocean by monitoring only things on the surface, which makes life easier. So the way uh, the scientists are doing that is they're f- using drones uh, to fly over areas which they suspect have colonies of shags. And then they basically go through those images. And these are typically quite large images with amazing resolutions. So I've seen data, like aerial data, with uh, six millimeters per pixel resolution, which is insane, right? So each pixel is like six by six millimeters. And then then from that, you can, uh, you, you can, well, identify the individual nests of shags in that image and then looking at it over time for example in the next nesting season you can infer you know how many shags how, how big a population can this area support and from that you can draw conclusions about the well-being of that ecosystem there so again you can see where this is going identifying nests which are roughly half a meter in diameter in images of like multiple hundreds of meters um, at a time is is you know very tedious, very prone to errors, and it's just like it's just painful to do it manually. So what we've built for for those scientists is an object detection model, which basically can identify oh in this box there is a nest, in this box of that image there is a nest, in this box there is a nest. And then counting the boxes, you can count the nests. And doing that over time, you can see what happens uh, with that population. Nice. What are the impacts of this project? Like, how much time has it saved the scientists? In this particular case, we are at a stage where they haven't really used it in their research yet. So for for now, they've uh, they've shared with us the data they had, and then we've uh, uh, built the, our models on top of it, and we've assessed together with them the models. And we know that it's kind of robust over time. So it's very good at predicting the nests on the islands that it has seen in the future seasons. It's very good at identifying nests on other islands that it hasn't seen. And it's also even good on predicting nests of on data that's provided by other groups. So, you know, they have, they're using different drones with different flyover techniques, different settings and, and everything. And still, the models are very robust. Um, and the next step in this particular case is to build a system, and we probably are going to leverage an open source application to just build an add-on to that application, because 
those particular scientists are quite often using that. Uh, I'm speaking about Kugis, which is uh, an open source um, uh, tool that is often used in uh, geospatial um, data, with geospatial data. So we're planning on building an add-on to that, uh, which will allow the uh, the scientists to use it in their, you know, within their typical workflow, uh, to basically speed it up uh, so that they can only investigate the results of the model, possibly correct if there are some uh, some mistakes here and there, because of course they sometimes happen, uh, but they're quite rare, I can tell you. So you obviously have a lot of experience using AI for conservation. What would you say are some of the most common challenges that you faced? I would say that not all conservation projects are uh, directly or, or can directly and easily benefit from uh, from the use of, of machine learning, as at least as I know it. Um, but there certainly are many that could and haven't yet. So the first major thing um, that I'm looking at when I'm discussing with uh, some scientists or, or ecologists about their data is, you know, where does it, the data come from? What, how well they understand it? How well they control it? Is it, uh, you know, collected from different sources? How are the things that we're going to use for labels um, collected or, you know, um, built? So to give you an example, when we started talking with the people uh, studying the Antarctic shags, they actually didn't have a clear idea of how to use ML. So they have that gut feeling that this could be used, but it was not obvious to them how to do that. And and it turned out that they have, they, they, what they did, they actually were just counting this. So they were just like pointing at the georeferenced map that, oh, there is, a, there is a nest here. And it so happened that they were pointing typically quite close to the center of that nest and that the nests have, typically quite uh, similar size. It's just like biology of of, uh, of, of the shacks, that they are typically uh, 50 centimeters in, uh, in diameter. So from the centers, we could actually quite reliably build labels for the object detection model automatically. Um, but, you know, the question whether you can get the labels easily uh, and in a re- reliable way is an important uh, question to assess whether a project is um, is a good one in the sense of you know likely to lead to good results. Um, another thing which which is important or which is often an obstacle is the computer science skills. So so basically programming skills. So quite often these days ecologists are using various ecological models, uh, so they're coding them in uh, in the languages they, uh, they're using. Quite often, statistical models are done in R. And these days, hardly anyone does neural networks in R. Most of it is done in Python. So there is a sort of language barrier um, of, uh, of those um, ecologists, at least, using the statistical models to, to leverage the Python, the, the, the solutions available in, in the Python world. Uh, so, so this is something that, uh, for example, we as a as a private company uh, dealing with uh, with Python code um, on our daily basis uh, can help them with. And, and lastly, it's it's just the ML skills. So the thing is that the pace of development in machine learning is so fast that it's impossible for it's very hard for people 
you know, invested in the ecological research and keeping up with that to also keep up with the advancement in the machine learning world. So they more and more often are aware of some of the advancements. They they want to try something. They maybe have an idea of, of how things can be used. And that's where we start the conversation. And quite often we um, we can reach a point where we either advise them that, well, maybe you first need to do this and that, or maybe, you know, machine learning is not the best solution. And in some cases, it actually feels like it's maybe going to give you very good results and possibly speed up your work a lot. Maybe you can, for example, broaden the scope of, of what you're doing. For listeners who might not have much knowledge on AI or machine learning, but they would really like to learn this, they would like to learn AI for conservation, where should they start? Like, what kind of concepts should they learn? What programming languages or packages should they learn? Or what other resources would you recommend? Yeah, so for classical machine learning, so statistical models uh, such as once I've mentioned, so like linear model, generalized linear models, uh, random forest, sorry, random forest and decision tree based models. Uh, definitely R can be a good language. And, uh, typically R is, is the language anyway used for the statistical modeling. Uh, so, so this might be a smaller, um, kind of gap to, um, to, to jump over. Uh, but if you are actually interested in, uh, the um, cutting-edge uh, machine learning, so basically these days neural networks, then definitely you need to go into Python. Uh, but these days there are quite many uh, high-level uh, high frameworks that you can start with. So there are um, libraries like um, PyTorch Lightning or um, FastAI or Keras or TensorFlow. So the, these are like high-level languages in which you can rather easily run your first models. And only then, when you need to, you can dive deeper and, and get more understanding. Quite often ourselves, even though uh, I, I would say that we, we have uh, quite some skills in the field, quite often when we start on a project, we actually first build our benchmark models uh, or baseline models actually in those high-level frameworks because they're just so quick and, and easy to use and they're quite easy to then adopt or, you know, tweak, uh, maybe add something, maybe modify something um, to, to build something more tailored to uh, to the particular use case. And how to start with those high-level frameworks? There are so many courses uh, online now. It's definitely worth uh, checking out a few of them, following them with the exercises and then it will give you a good assessment of, uh, you know, if, if whether it's something you want to do yourself or maybe you would like to hire a postdoc to do or maybe start a collaboration with a company having some sort of data for good um, uh, program like we do. Perfect. You mentioned a lot of nice resources and names there, so I'll definitely add those to the show notes. So yeah, if you're interested in learning neural networks, machine learning, definitely check out Python and specifically PyTorch and Keras. I've tried those myself for building neural networks, and they're pretty easy to grasp. There's plenty of resources, plenty of YouTube tutorials. So, yeah, as long as you, you commit some time and effort into it, it shouldn't be too hard to learn. So, Yenjay, 
I'm also curious to hear your background and story a bit more because it's not every day that you come across an AI scientist or a data scientist that works in conservation, right? Most of them are usually in like fang companies, private tech companies. So yeah, I'm just curious to hear your story and how you got into conservation. Yeah. So uh, I actually do work in the private sector. So uh, in our company, we do um, machine learning projects, uh, which um, w- which are commercial. Uh, we mostly focus on either doing research and development projects, which we, when we are trying to build something, you know, which is beyond what people thought uh, or what people have built before. Um, so, 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 you know, yep, yeah, it's R and D. Um, on the other hand, we also sometimes just, uh, joining other projects where people are struggling with getting to the point they, they want to be getting with their modeling. And then we're kind of advising them on, uh, on how to improve, uh, their workflows or their models or quite often their data, because quite often the problem lies in their data. And, mm, and apart from that, we also have uh, quite uh, quite some effort that we put into the so-called data for good projects. So this uh, this covers the projects mostly where we get in touch with some scientists or, or organizations um, dealing with some problems that we uh, find important. Uh, and and then this, uh, for example, in machine learning, this mostly focus on. Um, area, on the area of uh, biodiversity preservation, and then we basically, you know, whenever we have uh, we have the time, we have, for example, uh, a break in in some re- research and development long term project. We basically fill that break with, uh, you know, with with building some models that we uh, enjoy uh, building a lot, and then uh, find the fulfillment in. So this has definitely the upside of just uh, you know being a nice relief from the kind of um, long-term grind of building advanced uh, research uh, well uh, of developing a- advanced advanced tools that we're doing um, in our typical um, day at work and also I must say that uh, one of the factors of uh, like people when I spoke with people uh, who joined the team, you know what? What is the the, the factor that that uh, made them notice us, or or made them makes them want to work for us? This involvement is actually uh, is, is an important part of it. So it's also uh, that we this way we kind of gather people who uh, who are interested in those topics, so they want to contribute, um, and, and that actually um, is a very nice. Uh, Let's say access uh, along which you can you can uh, form a team. So also from kind of a so so to speak strategic uh, perspective, it it makes a lot of sense. And and my personal personal story is that after I left um, academia in in the theoretical physics uh, field, I actually wanted very much to still be somehow close to the research slash academic world. Um, so so I. I uh, I do believe that you know science is a is a worthy endeavor, and uh, the, with all its limitations and, and problems, it's still um, worthwhile to to try to uh, maybe well adv- advance it just a little bit. 
Um, so, so for example, helping uh, people smarter than me uh, who know a lot about, um, for example, ecology or you know the ways uh, to to understand the environment. Maybe if I can give them a tool uh, which will boost what they can do with their knowledge, uh, this will be a, a contribution that will eventually lead to um, to some positive results. So that's, I guess, my main motivation in this engagement. Nice. That's very inspiring. So from your experience working in data for good and doing AI for conservation, what are some of the main lessons or call to actions that you would like to share with our audience? So I would say that the two that first come to my mind is that I, I feel like there is quite a lot to be still done and gained from moving the two fields closer to each other. The two fields I, I mean are, on one hand, people doing ML, and so machine learning, it, for example, uh, you know, in the private sector, so just building enterprise models. And on the other hand, the, the scientists who are doing, you know, actual fundamental research or ecological research, quite often uh, the scientists could make a lot of use of, uh, let's say, uh, industry-level coding and then, you know, industry-level machine learning knowledge, data science skills. Uh, it can just basically speed up what they're doing. It can open the doors that they've been kind of seeing, but not knowing how to even touch in order to open. And on the other hand, so so it's so so basically my uh, I don't know lesson would be to to ask them to be uh, open to the idea of sharing their data and uh, and, and inviting people to to help them with their research. Um, on the other hand, the machine learning people I've spoken uh, with quite a lot of people in the field who are, you know, they are typically technological geeks. You know, they they like trying new things. They like experimenting. They they work for uh, they work in some data science slash machine learning companies or in companies using that in their daily lives, but they are. Mm, Quite often, they're looking for projects, or maybe they are thinking of, "Oh, I would like to have this impact," or you know, "I would like to do something that matters." Or there are different ways of expressing it, but they are typically, you know, they they want to do something uh, for the sake of, well, helping someone, maybe helping the planet. And and my lesson is that this is actually possible, and it it's not something that you can just dream of; you can actually make it happen. So. We actually had people from outside of our company joining us on the project. So, for example, in the Embaza project, we had a volunteer who worked for a different company, but just joined us because he liked the project so much. He just reached out, like, "Hey, guys, can I can I uh, join in and uh, and help you with it? Just you know, because I I like it so much, and this is awesome. Like, you can actually do that, uh, and you can reach out to the scientists or reach out to us to help us in our projects." Um, or some other companies. And we also reach out directly to scientists asking, like, you know, do you need some help? Maybe we can talk about how you potentially could use those tools. And, and this, this is something which gives a lot of, um, fulfillment. And, and it's, it's really also, especially in computer vision, it's really rewarding because the data sets we're looking at are just amazing. Like there are so many 
awesome images that uh, that I've seen, um, and, and so much I've learned. Like for example, the fact that African leopards, uh, for some reason, like licking the cameras. Um, so I have seen quite a lot of images where a, a leopard is like sniffing the camera, and then they're like licking the the lens, uh, and then of course the, the images are spoiled, but, but until the uh, the lens dries up. But uh, but you know it's it's just uh, just magnificent. Uh, so maybe one thing I I want to mention is that like it, it's a thing that I've been thinking of when when I was preparing a conference talk um, uh, recently, and then I just kind of reflected on on the different projects that I did, and you know when I started my career I was actually doing theoretical physics, and uh, it was a very uh, nice endeavor. It was intellectually challenging, and um, and you know I enjoyed many aspects of it. But then I I kind of missed that the impact part or like the direct impact. And I was thinking like, how can I make like you know do something else maybe in which I will have the feeling of this impact? And this was something really really important for me. Uh, and um. I would really like to uh, encourage, especially young people who are, you know, maybe a bit, uh, feel a bit stuck in, in what they're doing or, or are not yet, haven't yet decided on, on what they were doing, what they want to be doing, to kind of think of, you know, what are the skills? What is it that you have to offer? And then what is it that you want to be doing? And quite often you can kind of, I think it's possible to be bold in kind of coming up with ways you could leverage that and, kind of designing your own role and then try to find a place where you could um, make it happen. Uh, I was lucky enough to to, to find one uh, for myself and um, and now uh, I'm, I'm finding more and more people who, who like to join me on that endeavor. So I'm, uh, I'm really happy about that. Um, yep. And, and so I, I just, I guess I want to encourage people to, to actually make use of their skills if if they use it for for the conservation effort, uh, that would be great because that's something that uh, that I find very important. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Yenji, for sharing so many valuable insights. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. Please hand off to the audience where they can learn more about your work, contact you, or any other resources you would like to share. Sure. So uh, definitely, um, if you want to learn more about the projects I've mentioned. Uh, go to our website, which is epsilon.com. And there, there is a lot about the data visualization, uh, stuff there, which is mostly in shiny. Uh, but there is also a, quite a lot about AI and research. Um, and that's the part I've been talking about mostly today. And there, uh, especially in our blog post, uh, uh, sorry, in our blog, we have quite a lot of blog posts actually covering, uh, those projects. So for each of the ones I've mentioned today, uh, we're quite open about what we're doing because, I mean, we're not doing that to, uh, you know, to to uh, build something that we're gonna next sell. But those projects are are there to help the community, to to help the research. Uh, so there, we are open sourcing everything and uh, describing what we've done and how. So you can have a look there. Um, yep. And then, if you want to um, reach out to me directly, you can also uh, you can also find me on uh, on that website. Perfect. I'll link all of those in the show notes or the YouTube description. Yanjay, 
Thank you so much for coming on. I definitely learned a lot from this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. All the best. Thank you, Sam. It was very nice talking to you. That's it for today's episode of EcoChat. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review on whatever podcast platform you use. We're also on Twitter and YouTube. It really helps others find our show in the search algorithm. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on EcoChat.